Why do those frazzlin' dadgum mainstream media muckspouts constantly use such filthy consarn language? Senator Marco Rubio calls out the potty mouths on the left, and we will analyze why the left has made our culture so much coarser. Then, socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez lies about where she's from and grew up in order to score victim points. We will analyze because I'm from the town right next to where she grew up. <laughs> then Jennifer Rubin drops all pretense of being a Republican. Finally, we celebrate the great unsung hero president, James Garfield, one of, one of the great presidents on this day in history. Most important of all, Jeremy, the God King Boring, drops by from our sister network, Daily Wire 2, with an update on the World Cup. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. We got a lot going on today, and I want to ask why the F people are so effing profane these days. But before all that, in a special live stream, July 2nd at 7 p.m. Eastern, we will be joined by special guest Jordan Peterson to celebrate Independence Day. Not Canadian Independence Day, American Independence Day. God King Jeremy Boring will host a new edition of Daily Wire Backstage with me, Ben Shapiro, and the Andrew Clavin of the Andrew Clavin Show, the, the one and only Lord of the Multiverse, to look back on our country's birth and look ahead to its future. Subscribers will even be able to write in live questions for us to answer on the air. And if you're not a subscriber, too bad, become a subscriber. Again, that's today, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, with special guest Jordan B. Peterson. You can find our special live stream on Facebook and YouTube, so do not miss it. Before we get to the God King, Jeremy Boring, from our sister network, Daily Wire 2, let's make a little money, honey. How about that, huh? Keep the lights on and talk about one of, let, let me tell you, I don't, want, I don't want to give you guys too much of a window into my boudoir. You know, I'm a newly married man and everything. I like to keep a little privacy, but uh, bowl and branch sheets, oh, are they good. I love bowl and branch sheets. You know, we're never going to agree on everything, but we should, we can certainly all agree that we need more sleep. Uh, getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. You don't need ex an expensive mattress or sleeping pills. You uh, can just change out those sheets. I never knew this when I was a bachelor because as a many bachelors, I slept on uh, like sandpaper from Target, you know, or whatever the local store is. You buy the cheapest sheets, whatever. If you get really nice sheets, you sleep better. You feel like you're at a high-end hotel. I'm t it's, it's really nice. I put these on. I, Bull and Branch sent me a pair of these sheets because obviously Ben hasn't paid me in years, but I get the freebies sometimes. I put them on, I instantly ordered another set and, and actually paid for them with the money Ben doesn't pay me. They're that good. They are so, so good. Everything they make is made from 100% organic cotton. They start out super soft. They get even softer over time. You're not going to pay $1,000 for these sheets like a lot of luxury sheets cost. You buy directly from them. They cut out the middleman. You're only paying a couple hundred bucks. Everyone who tries Bowman Branch loves them. They have thousands of five-star reviews. Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, all talking about them. Three U.S. presidents sleep on Bowlin Branch sheets. James Garfield, because he was assassinated and lived in the 19th century, did not have the privilege of sleeping on Bowlin Branch sheets, but I bet if he could, he would have. Shipping is free. Try them for 30 nights. If you don't love them, Send them back for a refund, but you won't want to send them back. They're great. Get started right now. My listeners get $50 off your first set of, first set of seashells by the seashore. <laughs> they get $50 off your first set of sheets at bolandbranch.com, promo code Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Don't say I never did nothing for you. Go to bolandbranch.com today. $50 off your first set of sheets. B-O-L-L -L and branch.com. Promo code Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. If you occasionally entertain boudoir guests or are just sleeping there yourself, treat yourself. They're really, really good. They make a great impression. Bullenbranch.com. Promo code Michael. 
Okay, we, without further ado, this is a big weekend for the World Cup. We turn now to our sister network and Daily Wire 2 sports correspondent, Jeremy the God King Boring. Scaramooch, Scaramooch, will you do the Fandango, Michael? Enormous news from the Bear of the North. As for the second time in less than a century, Germany's dreams of global conquest collapsed in Western <laughs> Russia with their 2-0 defeat at the hands of South Korea, a nation with roughly half of Germany's GDP. Speaking to the BBC, former German champ Jurgen Klinsmann said, quote, it's always difficult when you win to repeat it four years later. An admittedly strange declaration from a nation that has made failure look easy in every generation since the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. <laughs> of course, Germany, who brought us the fall of Rome, the Dark Ages, nihilism, Nazism, two world wars, trance music, and the failed project that is the EU is never truly defeated and will undoubtedly rise again from the ash heap of history and prove that they can, in fact, put a small ball roughly the size of a human head through an enormous net without the use of the hands that God gave them, as well as any third world nation or France. In other World Cup news, this week marks the close of the tournament's group stage and the beginning of the quarterfinals. What this means is, frankly, anybody's guess. This sportscaster, for one, stopped reading the Wikipedia entry pretty early on, <laughs> if I'm being honest, because as a God-fearing American, I just couldn't be moved to give a flip about what kind of archaic rules govern this socialist non-sport, I having far more exciting things to do with my time, like dozing lightly in my armchair or literally anything else. <laughs> I did ask several people in my office who have repeatedly assured me that I'm wrong to criticize so beautiful a game if they could give me a quick rundown of how it all works before airtime. But they all reluctantly confessed to never having actually watched a match before the current World Cup started, even though they think it's hugely important cultural event and I should be ashamed of myself for blowing it off as nothing more than a deliberate attempt to reduce America from its status as shining city on a hill down to parody with the lowest common denominator equatorial hellhole from which the soul of man used to cry out for freedom and deliverance to so great a nation as this, but who now see that we're not really all that great if you really think about it, because without our hands and the complexity with which we conquered war, poverty, disease, and death since the last world war, we're really just like everybody else. Also, men are not stronger than women, the Millennium Falcon was never all that fast, and Batman could totally take Superman in a fight, even though the latter is invincible and can literally shoot laser beams at the speed of light from his eyes from space, a place that none of the countries that have ever won the World Cup have ever been to. Probably, probably because they haven't figured out how to use their hands. To be clear... <laughs> to be clear, however... It's not the position of this uh, self-entertained journalist that the admittedly handsome men who run around and fake injuries on the soccer field are not athletes. On the contrary, they are clearly quite fit and able to run around, if aimlessly, for long periods of time with no breaks. The issue is not that they aren't athletes. It's that soccer is not a sport. It's an admittedly mesmerizing bit of choreography in which colorful objects move back and forth across your screen and then nothing happens. Here's a clip of one of the weekend's more interesting matches by way of example. <laughs> Mesmerizing. That's it for this week's World Cup recap. Michael, Scaramooch, Scaramooch, <laughs> will you do the Fandango? Back to you. Jeremy, that was such an informative uh, recap of the World Cup. I really appreciate that. You know, yeah. we were, you were talking a little bit there about uh, Germany's strategy. I, I was under the I impression. I talked about that? 
I was under the impression that uh, Germany's strategy was to have their competition in the World Cup last a thousand years, <laughs> but it seems to have been cut short. Should yeah, yeah. we fear the, uh, the the German soccer team rising up again uh, within, say, I don't know, four to seven years? Well, Michael, historically, they always have. Uh, fortunately for us, the brave men and women of Western Europe who formerly gave the world the British Empire and complex manly sports such as cricket mm-hmm. and wealthy sports such as polo will undoubtedly seek a peace for our time and appease Germany all the way to future catastrophe. The, uh, one does wonder if we should just dismantle the German soccer team once and for all, but uh, it seems to me that the international community just no, won't let that happen. No, no, no. They have the right to pride as a nation, and we shouldn't stand in their way. All they're looking for is a little breathing room. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. You know, Jeremy, we've, we've heard a lot uh, from the left about how awful Russia is these days and, and uh, the mm-hmm. United States mm-hmm. colluded with Russia, but they're hosting the, this most wonderful and important international sporting event. Shouldn't we just give them a free pass? Well, obviously, uh, this sportscaster doesn't know much about politics, uh, but I will say (laughs) that of all the things that Donald Trump has done that have offended uh, those in the former Never Trump contingent, perhaps Mm. winning the World Cup for the United States of America eight years hence is the worst and the greatest proof that he seeks to follow in the footsteps of mass murderer Vladimir Putin (laughs) in uh, reducing the world down to a sort of pre-civilizational hell uh, from which even Jordan B. Peterson's philosophy may not be able to save us. I'll have to reread Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It's been a while <laughs> since I've gone into Gulag Archipelago. Yeah. Jeremy the God King Boring from Daily Wire 2, and a very important update, and basically has convinced me now to go never Trump. Jeremy, thanks for being here. We'll talk to you soon. Scaramooch! <laughs> So that, you know, I think and on this episode, I want to talk about just how profane our culture has gotten and specifically the left, why the left has just become so profane. They just have terrible potty mouths and there is no more profane way to begin than talking about soccer. So I'm glad we could get that out of the way. Really, really informative. On, uh, on the question of profanity, you might have seen Marco Rubio tweet out over the weekend about how bad the the culture has gotten, how coarse the culture has gotten. And I'm not saying it's because people say naughty words. People have always said naughty words. It's because they're doing it so publicly now and that the left has really embraced this. Uh, Marco Rubio, he, he tweeted out, quote, sign of our times, the F word is now used routinely in news stories, tweets, etc. It's not even F star, star, star anymore. Uh, who made that decision? And it's funny, like, as he says this, I was thinking about that. I said, you're right. It used to be F star, 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 asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Try to say that three times fast. Uh, But now they don't even do that. They just say it. And as I'm doing that, Kathy Griffin, the former comedian, the alleged comedian Kathy Griffin, starts tweeting at me and calling me a mother effer. And I actually, I, I, this... People didn't understand this, but I, tw- I tweeted that out. I said, oh, hey, everybody, Kathy Griffin just called me a mother effer, but without the asterisks. And people thought I was like whining about that. I was referencing Marco Rubio because she proved the left always does this. The right makes an observation and they say, no, we're not like that. And they immediately prove the right's point. So I, I got into this, uh, this little uh, Twitter fight for a while uh, with Kathy Griffin because I pointed out all she does now is scream profanity on Twitter and on television at former Republican officials. So she, she sent out this tweet. She said, F you, Ari Fleischer. Ari Fleischer was the, the first press secretary for President Bush. And I said that, you know, that isn't comedy. You can probably 
get an audience doing that. You can probably endear yourself to, to angry Democrats, but it isn't comedy. It's kind of just cheap. It's like a, a cheat in entertainment. So she responds, she goes, I just did two big shows at Radio City Music Hall in Carnegie Hall, along with shows in San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, Boston. So someone disagrees with you, mother effer. I said, you're actually kind of showing my point. I'm not saying you can't sell shows. Jimmy Kimmel has now made a career on claps, not laughs, to use Owen Benjamin's phrase. He's, uh, you know, they're going out there and instead of actually working up jokes and trying to be funny, they're just going out and saying mean things about Republicans. And that's supposed to substitute for a joke. And this has been going on for a long time. It's just a cheapness. And what it shows is that the culture has gotten a little stupider and a little coarser and a little shallower. But we'll, we'll explain why, because this isn't just about Kathy Griffin. This isn't just about Donald Trump. This isn't about, this has been going on for a long time and it's been brought up by uh, the left. So yeah, obviously it's all over TV. It's all over music. I'm sure even for you know, our, our audience, I think, is 99.7% millennial, and then the rest is whatever comes after millennial. But even growing up, when millennials grew up, you didn't hear these things really on TV. But, but now they're all over TV. The uh, much more profane words than were when we were kids are all over music. Every other word is the F word, right? I was riding the subway in New York. Uh, this was a couple months ago, and I'm sitting there, and some guy was, he had his boombox or speakers or whatever, and he's blasting out this very profane gangster rap where every other word is the F word or the N word. And that's all it is. And he's sitting next to these like nice little old women. And I would have intervened, except he was big and scary and wearing sort of like gang colored paraphernalia. And listen, man, I don't need to be a hero. Okay. I don't need to die on the four train, but everyone was just looking at him and he was staring at everybody else like a sort of challenge. You know, I, this is the culture now. This is what we're going to put out here. And, uh, but when did this start? Why did this begin? A lot of people blame South Park, but I, I really want to defend South Park here. Uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's show, you know, since the late 90s, and the kids had potty mouths. But South Park sort of cursed ironically. Like these kids were showing something about the culture, right? But the, they would even joke about swear words. They did an episode where they said, if everybody just starts swearing in public all the time, then the swear words don't have any meaning. They don't, they don't do anything. Like you, the, in order for the, for profanity to be profane, you have to have the sacred because it, it has to counter the sacred. It has to undercut the sacred. So I actually think South Park have been the great observers of this trend. I don't think they caused it. It's been happening for, for a long time. Uh, why did it happen? Part of this is freedom. So part of this is that, uh, you know, in, in the old days when uh, everything was just network television, then you could have uh, people come out, standards bureaus, and say, you can't use this word on TV, you can't use this word on TV. George Carlin had the seven words you can't say on TV special, right? All these naughty words. But then once you have all of the streaming platforms, once it's all really just part of the internet or new media, you can't do that anymore, right? There's no, st you can't go to every blog and to every web series and say, no, you've, you've said a naughty word. Same thing with music. Music uh, used to censor their, their naughtiest words, you know, and a lot of that was Walmart. So, you know, Walmart was a major seller of CDs. They would say, we're not going to sell explicit CDs. And so the producers in the studios would say, okay, I guess we have to put out a cleaner, cleaner version too, if we want to actually sell them. Now that we have streaming, now that music is just free and everyone just puts it right into their cars or right into their homes, that doesn't exist anymore. And so there is this, uh, uh, impulse for uh, in, in human freedom and in a, a libertine culture to just constantly do whatever people say that you can't do. 
Uh, we'll explain how this has infected politics and why it, it probably doesn't spell a good good end for the Democrat Party. And we'll also make fun of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for lying about her, where she's from. And it is a lie. People are trying to say it isn't a lie now. It is. Before we do that, got to make a little more money, honey. All right. These, these lights, they don't keep themselves on. And we, this, is, this is a really important one because uh, obviously, you know, when uh, Ben Shapiro was putting together some of these shows, uh, he didn't use ZipRecruiter. Hence my lovely setup here. I get my show. You know, it's really nice. If he had used ZipRecruiter, he'd be much happier these days. I mean, you'd be, I don't know what show this would be now. This would be the Ben Shapiro 2 show, you know, uh, but uh, ZipRecruiter is a wonderful sponsor and they will, re- they really make hiring very, very easy. Uh, uh, ZipRecruiter, it sends your job over to 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't just stop there. So in the old days, you'd put your job on a job board and then it would just die. It would somehow get dust on the internet, you know, because you just post it. Okay, the internet is just people screaming into the, the ether, right? Uh, what ZipRecruiter does is it actually finds you the candidates. So with their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes, finds people with the right experience, and invites those people to apply for your job. Makes it much faster. Time is money. It's much more efficient. It finds qualified people who are a match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. So it spotlights those top candidates. You won't miss a good candidate. Everybody knows this. Uh, The team is important. I like it really, I, I will say that even though Ben, you know, wants to like clobber me every single day in the studio, having a team is really what makes uh, businesses work. The, the people that you have. So with results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. Don't say I never did nothing for you at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash MKS. Go there right now. I'll wait. I'll, oh, I'll wait all day. ZipRecruiter.com slash MKS. Uh, ZipRecruiter, Z-I-P-R-E-C-R-U-I-T-E-R.com, D-O-T-C-O-M slash S-L-A-S-H-M-K-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay. <laughs> so you, you remember this, even uh, in, in movies, this is the case. All the great movies ever made were made in 1939. Somehow, you know, f- phenomenal films, uh, Gone with the Wind, Wuthering Heights, I believe, uh, uh, what's the most famous movie ever made? The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz, made in 1939, when there was sort of, not censorship, but there were standards boards that you had to watch out for. And then when those went away, the quality declined. Uh, this isn't just the case in pop culture. Uh, so the, part of the reason is like, you know, uh, sonnets. Like poetry is good when there are constraints on it because then the creativity comes out and you're, you're working within constraints. But slam poetry is the death of art. It is the worst thing ever invented. It is one of the great plagues to ever afflict mankind. Why? Because there are no constraints. So it's just nothing. Uh, we're seeing this in politics. We're seeing the slam poetry of politics brought to you courtesy of the Democrat party. Here is not a random activist, not a random resistance fighter, not any of that. This is the head of the Democrat party, Tom Perez. Here's just a little clip of his soaring rhetoric. Those Republican leaders and President Trump don't give a about the people they were trying to hurt. You're God right he's a liar. That's it, my friends. Budget is another example of broken promises. The budget is bankrupt. They call it a skinny budget. I call it a budget. 
I don't want people to think I'm being a prude here or something, or I'm being too uh, formal or something. Obviously, when guys hang out, they frequently use salty language. They frequently talk like Tom Perez. I don't begrudge any guy that. Uh, there, there is a kind of social uh, impulse for that. The difference here is, is the uh, public nature of all of this, because it isn't just the head of the DNC. It's senators, it's the activists, it's the rank and file, it's uh, uh, pundits on television, it's cultural figures and commentators. They're all using filthy language in public. And uh, what it shows is a decay in the ability of these people to think, a decay in how they think, a decay in their respect for themselves, for their country, for their party, for what they're doing, and uh, for other people around them. You know, there's a reason that, that uh, you don't swear in front of little old ladies. You can talk in a bar with your pals and, you know, speak in a certain way, and you don't speak that way with little old ladies. It's about respect. Uh, I'll, I'll just compare. Uh, have, have you ever listened to Pod Save America? I had never listened to it. Pod Save America are those guys from the Obama administration. Uh, and th- so they created their own podcast. It's like the left wing Daily Wire, uh, sort of, right? I mean, it's this kind of these political guys. They started these big podcasts. I had never listened to it. Pod Save America is so bad. But it's so beautifully bad. Like there are so many things bad about it. It made me feel much better. Sometimes you wonder, you say, oh, I wonder how the guys on the left are doing this or we is whatever. Oh my goodness gracious. Every single Daily Wire show is like a Shakespearean tragedy compared to the (laughs) drivel, glib nonsense put out by Pod Save America. Here is just a little clip to underscore a few points that we're talking about here from whatever random episode I listened to of Pod Save America. We're not, there are things we can do. And so I think about this as like, what can we do in the short term, the medium term, and the long term to deal with this massive problem? So short term is blow up the phone lines at the Senate. We've said this before. Now it's really true. Literally the most important election of our lifetime ever. More than a presidential election at this point. This is like the last call for democracy. That's what we said on the last fall. Um, because here's how the Supreme Court thing shakes out. So that guy, you, you know he's serious, right? You know he's serious because he said the F word. He said he's, re- and also just even, I hate to, I don't want to like get into just personal insults or psychobabble or whatever, but he, the guy sounds like a Democrat, doesn't he? He has the voice of just like, well, I, I can't even do it. I don't even know how, I don't know how many years of conservatory training I have. I can't do that voice of a Democrat. That's sort of like Marlon Brando when he did The Godfather. He put cotton balls in his mouth to listen, Tom, this is my right? And it would create that sound. I, you would have to put little like so, soy balls in your mouth to, you'd have to have the soy in there to, to that's, that's too mean. I'm not going to go down that road. Uh, but he said, they get really serious. Lefties do this a lot. So I'm really serious. I'm going to say the F word. That's how you know I'm serious. I'm, if I had just spoken like an adult, then you wouldn't know, you know, and it's just this whining. But all they do, you listen on Pod Save America and all it is, is like talking point innuendo. So all they, they say, the Supreme Court seat was stolen. How is it stolen? They can't, they don't know. They didn't. And Trump is colluding with Putin. They ha- Can you give, explain that at all? No, of course not. You're just going, oh, <laughs> right. It's all this, but, but it's the, the reliance on the F word is that that makes you uh, smarter or wittier or funnier or more insightful, but it doesn't. It's a substitute for that. It's when you don't have insight or wit or, or whatever that you can, that you have to rely on those sorts of words. And it's really sad, you know, some people now, whenever I point this out, they send around these, these surveys that show, allegedly, that people who swear 
are smarter. They have a higher IQ. And there, there might be something to this, but really uh, the way these studies are done is that they're just about people's facility with language. So they'll see how people can swear or what, you know, what sort of uh, ways they use language. And it's true. If you, you, if you can swear or if you can use regular language, uh, non-profane language, if you can use it very well, that's a sign of uh, high IQ. That's why, you know, I think nobody has ever matched the concision, which is uh, brevity being the soul of wit, of my number one best-selling book, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, a Comprehensive Guide. I mean, that's really the most concise and fluid use of language in modern literature. And so I, I thank everybody, you know, for uh, reading that. And clearly they're all scholars and scientists too. The, uh, but the, the ability to use profanity and to move these words around might be evidence of a high IQ, but use it. But it, 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 the question is, when is it appropriate to use it? Because the people that I hear using profanity in public or next to little old ladies on the train, they don't seem to have a very high IQ. I don't think that they, you know, I don't think they go home at night and read Aristotle or something. <laughs> I think they're, you know, they're, uh, they're public louts, basically. I mean, they're just uh, vulgar people who don't show a lot of respect. So sure, you can have a great command of language. And I know plenty of people who speak very properly and, and politely in public who can talk like a sailor sometime with the boys. That's all fine. Uh, what, it, what it means when you use language like uh, Pod Save America does or the head of the DNC or these other left-wing pundits, it, it means that you don't have any self-control. You don't have any discipline. You, you can't control yourself. You, you don't, it actually shows the opposite of what those apparent IQ studies are, are supposed to show. You, you aren't able to control your language. You, you, what it also shows is this lack of respect for the audience, the people around you, people who might not want to hear that. You know, someone says, well, who cares? It's all over the place. Do, do, you, do I really clutch my pearls when I hear the F word? And no, I mean, you hear it a lot, but it's sort of like a person with perfect pitch. This is it with like civilized people, polite people and civilized people who don't say a lot of naughty words. Uh, when they hear a lot of profane language, it does bother them in the way that it might not bother other people who deal in that all the time. Uh, just like when someone who has perfect pitch hears a note that's just a little bit off, it really bothers them because they know where the pitch is supposed to be. Whereas someone who has bad uh, pitch, you know, who, who can't really hear the difference in pitch and tone, it won't bother them at all because they're just less cultured. They're less attuned to that. Uh, same thing with profanity. Uh, just compare some of this rhetoric that we're hearing. You hear it on Pod Save America. You hear it from the head of the Democrat Party. Compare that to, oh, I don't know, the Gettysburg Address, you know, one of the great uh, pieces of rhetoric in American history. I'll just read it. It's a sh short speech, so it's pretty quick. Just compare what, that, what this language does to you compared to what Tom Perez does to you. Uh, the Gettysburg Address reads, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We're met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. 
The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. What if he had sprinkled in just a couple F-bombs, you know? Wouldn't that have really shown he cared? He was really passionate? Kirsten Gillibrand, people blame this on Trump. They say, well, Trump uses naughty language in public. And sometimes he does. Uh, Much less so since he's been in office because he's getting better about this. But sure, this long predates uh, Donald Trump. This is not exclusive to him. And it's really been brought up by the left. Kirsten Gillibrand was talking to New York Magazine a few years ago. She said, if we're not helping people, we should go the F home. When she started in the Senate, she said she had no effing clue how to pass a bill. Why say that? In, I, I don't look. Sometimes uh, people use swear words in private. Sometimes they accidentally say them in public, and they say, "Oh, pardon my French. Sorry, I didn't. I shouldn't have said that." People do. They make that mistake. But she's trying to say. It. She's taking pride in saying it. Uh, in 2004, long before Donald Trump was a presidential candidate, uh, Kerry, uh, John Kerry, running for president, said that George W. Bush effed the country up, effed up the country. He said, you just, uh, publicly, why would you try to say that publicly? There's clearly something uh, going on here with the way that people are approaching respect and, uh, and the way that they're talking about their, their fellow countrymen. Uh, it's, this is the same reason, by the way, to use titles. Some people think it's crazy to say Mr. Smith, Mr. and Mrs. John Smith or something. This was a big issue when I was doing wedding invitations. You have Everyone now wants weird, wacky titles. So they'll say, you know, you have to say Mr. and Mrs. John Smith or Mrs. Jane Sue and Mr. John Smith or whatever, all these things. They say, why are you using Mr. and Mrs. and doctorates? So old school. You, just now we get rid of these. I learned this from a seminar with Leon Cass, the great bioethicist, where in the seminar, we're all 18, 20 year old kids. We would say, okay, instead of saying, hey, John, you had this idea about the book and I think it's this, use Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, Mr. Whatever. And it does elevate the conversation. That formality elevates things. It's why in Congress and in Parliament and even in little debating societies, people use Robert's Rules of Order. It's why there is etiquette. You know, the word etiquette, uh, the French word etiquette, appears in its modern use in around 1750. And uh, coincidentally, that's the height of our civilization, right? That's sort of the peak of modernity. And it all really declines from there. Uh, etiquette is are these formal rules, these manners, this civility that uh, we all agree to do, not because we love them, not because we're pearl clutching, not because we're prude, but because it makes the world more pleasant, makes things nicer and, and it facilitates communication. And it's a little nice, you know, uh, today there's no respect for the culture. Profanity is the profane, right? It, is, it shows irreverence for the sacred. There's the profane and there's the sacred. So to show that irreverence for, the, for this culture is because you don't like it, because you hate it. Because, you know, if you have manners, it means you were raised right, it means you have respect. You were taught respect from a young age. The 
people who, little kids who, every little kid says curse words and usually their parents say, stop saying that, right? Uh, Don't say, that isn't polite to do, people don't like that. Uh, You don't see that as much anymore. And uh, that that isn't just a, you know, look, there are a lot of problems with the family, but it's, it's this deeper cultural problem. People don't have any respect for their uh, country. They, people need to stop this. The reason not to use swear words in public, I suppose you can use them in private and then you sound like a cool guy, is because they, they just coarsen everything around you. And they lose their power. So when you, a, a really well-placed F-bomb in a private conversation at a bar is a beautiful thing. And it really, you know, can really liven up a story. But when it becomes the mode of the culture, it's just bleh, It's just gross and unpleasant. No one wants to live like that. The reason not to use swear words is because you have respect for yourself. You know, the, the left uh, tends to hate Western civilization because they hate their country, because they hate themselves. They, they, there is a self-hatred that comes out of that uh, left-wing uh, self-flagellation. Uh, don't do it. You know, when you're in public, just have respect for people around you. You show respect for yourself. Uh, someone who doesn't have any respect for herself is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the socialista who won in Queens. Uh, she's posing herself as this a city girl. Let's see, do I have to sign off? I'll get to this story, then I'll have to sign off. Uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez just unseated Joe Crowley, big upset. She's running as an open socialist. And she says, President Trump has never had to deal with a girl from the Bronx like me. I said, oh, a girl from the Bronx, huh? Let me do like three seconds of a Google search. And Oh, and that's a lie. She's not. Uh, Alexandria Cortez was born in the Bronx. And then before elementary school, she moved up to the suburbs, to Yorktown Heights, which is in Westchester County. And she grew up in a very privileged position. And uh, now people are saying, uh, and she's, she's been trying to, by the way, pose herself as this, you know, she never really moved up. She just went to school there, whatever. It, it's a lie. Even people on the right right now are, are trying to defend her from this. I have a unique perspective in that I also lived as a baby in a poor part of New York City. And then I also, before elementary school, moved up to Westchester County, coincidentally to the town right next to the town that she is from. And actually, the only difference here is that she was born in Parkchester in the Bronx, and I lived my first baby moments uh, in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, which is slightly uh, less affluent and less uh, and more racially diverse. And then she moved up to Yorktown Heights in Westchester. I moved up to Bedford Hills, which is much more racially diverse and much less affluent than the town she grew up in. So these are almost parallel stories. And I can tell you, man, we grew up a pretty posh childhood. It is hard to beat that in terms of uh, safety, in terms of school districts, in terms of uh, relative affluence, even if our families, I can't speak for her family, but even if we didn't have a ton of money, you know, you're just in such an affluent area. That is a privileged upbringing. People go to great universities from there because it's a good place to be with good education. She's trying to spin it. I've, I've never denied how great it was. I'm very grateful to have had a relatively pleasant childhood. She's denying it. And here's how she's denying it. People are saying she's just using language creatively. It's a, it's a flat out lie. She writes on her campaign website, from an early age, Alexandria grew up with a deep understanding of income inequality. The state of Bronx public schools in the late 1980s and early 1990s sent her parents on search for a solution. She ended up attending public school 40 minutes north in Yorktown, and much of her life was defined by the 40-minute commute between school and her family in the Bronx. It was clear to her even then that the zip code a child was born into determined much of their destiny. The 40-minute drive represented a vastly different quality of schooling, economic opportunity, and health outcomes. That's true. She didn't commute. 
She didn't commute. She didn't. What she is saying, what makes it a lie is the commute part. A commute is a regular journey that she lived in the Bronx and she went to school in Yorktown, which is not possible, by the way. To access these public schools, you have to live in the town where the school is. So that's obviously a lie. She lived in Yorktown Heights. She didn't live in the Bronx. If she means that she went to visit relatives in the Bronx, uh, okay, you and every other person in Westchester County, I went to visit relatives in the Bronx when I was a kid. Everybody did. That's not a commute. That's going on a trip to grandma's house. You don't commute to grandma's house. I didn't go on, uh, I commuted to Florida to see my grandparents. No, that's not a commute. That's a lie. She's lying. And uh, John Podhoretz, whom I like, but he's, he's wrong about this. He tweeted out at some conservative commentator who observed this lie. He said, good God, you're a know-nothing schmuck. Yorktown Heights is an ethnic suburb, the most modest in the county. Now go be a pig somewhere else. I disagree with Cortez on everything, but you're a repellent slime bucket of a person. I don't know where all that anger came from, but what he said about Yorktown Heights just flat out is not true. It is, not only is it not the most modest town in Westchester County, it's one of the more affluent ones. It's, it's the, the, uh, uh, median household income is, I believe, more than double what the median household income was in my hometown in Westchester right next door. And my hometown was pretty nice. Uh, uh, Yorktown, if, if he was talking about an ethnic neighborhood, the ethnicity would have to be white. That's the, that's the ethnicity of that neighborhood. Yorktown Heights is 88% white. I believe in those days it was even higher. Uh, uh, 88% white, uh, uh, some Asian then, I think 5 to 6% Asian, and a little bit Hispanic. My hometown, one town over, Bedford Hills, 53% white, 40 some odd percent Hispanic, and 2 or 3% black, 1, one to 3% black. Uh, much more ethnically diverse, uh, much uh, less affluent, uh, but they're all, they're all defending her on this. Don't, don't defend her on this. It's a flat out lie. And this is going to dog her, by the way. Uh, it won't matter in the seat. I mean, the seat is basically a lock. It's not that a, a Republican is suddenly going to flip this district that nominated a socialist. But it's going to dog her in the way that Pocahontas has dogged Elizabeth Warren. Because especially at this time in politics, authenticity matters. Uh, we talked about that in the Elvis Donald Trump segment last Thursday. Authenticity matters here. And what we now know about her is she's a liar about her identity. She tweeted at some conservative talking about this. She said, uh, you're trying to rob me of me, my identity. The only person robbing you of your identity is you because you're utterly lying about it. But Pocahontas, Elizabeth Warren is not a Native American. And you were not raised in the Bronx. You were raised in a very affluent suburb. You should be grateful for that. And you should try to spread abundance and prosperity to your fellow countrymen instead of lying and playing the victim and pretending that you're, you're something that you're not and trying to spread uh, poverty and misery, division and victimhood uh, to your constituents to win an election. It's a cynical misrepresentation. It's very disrespectful to people who didn't have the privileges that she had and she should be ashamed. She'll probably win this seat, but it's going to dog her. She, she, this is her Pocahontas moment. Okay, I gotta say goodbye. I'm running really late to Facebook and YouTube. Uh, by the time we get back, I've got to talk about the greatest president, one of the great presidents in American history. I also have to make fun of Jennifer Rubin. If you want to see all that, you got to go to dailywire.com. It's 10 bucks a month, $100 for an annual membership. You get me, you get the Andrew Clavin Show, you get the Ben Shapiro Show, you get to ask questions in the mailbag, you get to ask questions in the conversation that we're just about to have with the one and only Jordan B. Peterson. None of that, none of that matters. This, we're doing local batches now of uh, leftist tears. We're doing little, it's kind of micro brews. And this is, uh, this is a lovely little batch from Yorktown Heights. Uh, they're known for their, uh, their a beautiful blend of uh, salt and water. A really good leftist. I'll just take a little, little thumb. Mm. Mm. That's good. If I were on the left, I would say that's effing good so that you know that I'm serious. Uh, 
<laughs> Go to dailywire.com. We'll be right back to make fun of Jennifer Rubin and talk about President Garfield. All right, really quickly in our last moments here, some good news over the weekend for the culture, for the politics. Jennifer Rubin, the favorite fake Republican of the mainstream media, more than Anna Navarro, more than Steve Schmidt, Jennifer Rubin, who has pretended to be a conservative for many, many years now, is calling for lifelong mob harassment of Sarah Huckabee Sanders because she had the audacity, the villainy, to be a press secretary in a Republican administration. Here is fake Republican Jennifer Rubin. But we're not going to let these people go through life unscathed. Sarah Huckabee has no right to live a life of no fuss, no muss after lying to the press, after inciting against the press. These people should be made uncomfortable. And I think that's a life sentence, frankly. A life sentence. You heard it. Jennifer Rubin said it. You heard it from her, folks. This is a I'm glad she's finally really showing her colors here because the the left does this. We don't really get a lot of fake Democrats, unfortunately, other than Joe Manchin. (laughs) We have one in the Senate, but you know, we don't, unfortunately the Republicans haven't gathered our own fake Democrats, but they gather their own fake Republicans. Steve Schmidt, Anna Navarro, Jennifer Rubin, uh, and uh, more kind of come in and out. I'll, I'll be nice and not call out some of the people who I think are being used for Democrat purposes. But Jennifer Rubin is really one of the worst. And she, listen to what she's calling for here. Sarah Sanders is one of the most competent people in the administration and maybe in the country. I mean, she is really, really good at her job. She's a clear communicator. She doesn't lie. She, they, they try to accuse her of all sorts of wickedness and evil. She seems like a total straight shooter. She's uh, all around a good woman. She always had a, repu- a good reputation until she had the great audacity to work for the Republican president. She's calling for her to be harassed for the rest of her life. Th- there is no difference between Jennifer Rubin and Maxine Waters right now. There's no difference between the craziest, insane left-wing Democrat congresswoman and the person that Washington Post pretends is their conservative columnist. It's a total farce. And this is one of the tricks of the mainstream media is they, they put out their own conservatives who aren't really conservative. So they say we're balanced. We're presenting both sides of the opinion. The New York Times does this. They have David Brooks. He's the conservative. He's not a conservative. He endorsed Barack Obama because of the crease of his pants. That's not a conservative. Washington Post has Jennifer Rubin, but there isn't actually intellectual diversity here. There is just the pretense of intellectual diversity. There's the pretense of political diversity. It seems to have worked well for these mainstream outlets for a long time. I wonder if the right shouldn't try to emulate that. Because even Fox News, there have been a few kind of squishy Democrats who have gone on there, but not really. At least Fox is generally pretty honest about this. And when they bring a lefty on, they let that lefty go crazy and humiliate himself. But when the the left-wing outlets bring a conservative on, it's always conservatives who who aren't really conservatives, who just say uh, Democrat talking points. And that, that really shows you something. It shows that the right is not afraid to hear different points of view. Why? Because we're confident in our message and in our argument. And if someone presents a different argument that's better, I guess we'll change our mind, but that's probably unlikely because we are right. Uh, most of the time. The left is terrified of hearing the conservative argument. They don't let it come on their shows. They don't air it. I've never once been invited on a left-wing network. 
Um, I, and a lot of my friends uh, who also, you know, sometimes go on Fox News or other media outlets do not get invites on CNN or on Pod Save America, that horrific podcast. They would never do it. I would have Pod Save America guys come on this show anytime. I'd love to talk to them. I've begged Democrats to come on this show. Tom Arnold is the only one with the guts to do it, basically, uh, which is why I like Tom Arnold. He gave one of the wilder interviews, maybe in the history of broadcasting, but at least the guy had the guts to come on. Uh, the, the left will not have Republicans on, it's because they're afraid. It tells you everything you need to know. So good. I hope Jennifer Rubin gets uh, two columns now. I hope she gets to call for mob terror against Republicans in two separate columns. It shows them for what they are, uh, uh, phonies who can't stand up to the light of scrutiny. Okay, before we go, I've got it. We're already running late. I've got to get to this day in history with one of the great unsung American presidents, James Garfield. James Garfield on this day in history uh, was shot. He didn't die. He didn't die until uh, until uh, September, I believe. And this was uh, this day in history in 1881. James Garfield only really served as president for four months because then he was shot and really kind of out of it, though I guess technically he served for six months. But James Garfield was a forgettable president in if you talk to history teachers and you look at mainstream history curricula. He was a good president. He, he was a very promising president. He had a good start. He was devoted to liberty. He was a Republican not only from the beginning of his career. He was a Republican from the beginning of the party. The Republican Party was founded in 1856 to free the Democrat slaves. And by 1857, when he entered into politics, he was 22 years old, he became a Republican for that reason. He was deeply committed to civil rights for all Americans, including black Americans. He uh, was a uh, uh, cleaned up government. He was an anti-corruption candidate. And he was nominated by accident in this really great American way. At the 1880 uh, GOP presidential uh, nomination contest at the GOP convention, he was the campaign manager for then Secretary of the Treasury, John Sherman. And uh, he gave the nominating speech for this guy, John Sherman, for president. And uh, Sherman, Ulysses S. Grant, and James Blaine were vying for it. And they couldn't get enough votes None of them could meet the threshold to become the nominee of the party. So as a compromise candidate, on the 36th ballot, uh, James Garfield was able to get the nomination, and his vice president was Chester Arthur. The 36th ballot, you know, now the nominating conventions are all sort of a farce. They're decided beforehand or whatever. This was the real deal. This is actually where they picked their nominee. It wasn't just the appearance of the thing. It actually did what it said it was doing, which is figuring out how to nominate a candidate. And so James Garfield gets it on the 70 or on the 36th ballot. The reason I really have a soft spot in my heart for him, I'll have to lean back to one of my, my great uh, literary works. James Garfield invented the blank book as an American literary genre. You know, I have a, a certain affinity for blank political books. The first blank book in American political history is a book called, I'm going to get the title a little bit off, but uh, The Statesmanship and Political Achievements of uh, General Winfield Scott Hancock, the regular Democrat nominee for president. So, you know, the, it would be like Trump saying, Here, uh, here's my book, The Accomplishments of Hillary Clinton, and it's all blank. It was a, a five-page blank book in 1880. And obviously now, you know, paper is a lot cheaper. Printing is a little bit easier. So I was able to have 200 some odd pages. They could only do five back then. But it was so great because the first blank book in American political history was a Republican 
trolling a Democrat and not just any Republican, the nominee for president <laughs> trolling a Democrat. Uh, really, really good. He was killed within, you know, or was shot within four months, killed within six. And nevertheless, in that very short amount of time, now these days it takes two years to get anything done uh, if you're president, other than if you're Donald Trump. But this guy was able to uh, uh, pull back presidential appointment power from the Senate in those four months, rebuild America's Navy, make it great again, and uh, purge corruption from some federal agencies, from the post office. He was able to purge corruption, not an easy thing to do. He was very big on education. He was very big on civil rights. Good president. Would have been a, a really good president uh, if had he lived longer. He gave us Chester Arthur afterward, another great president. Uh, but a guy who is forgotten on his deathbed or near his deathbed, he said, will, will I have made any mark on history? Will history remember me? And, uh, and he did. He turned the country a little bit in the right direction. And uh, he, was a, he was a good man. And he gave us Chester Arthur. We'll go into him some other day, but he's an important president too. And uh, a salute to uh, President Garfield because he changed history in a very important way. He made me a lot of money. And that's a very important thing. And he, and he gave us uh, one of one of my favorite trolls, you know, of, of the year 2017 and a mark of the exuberance of the right after the election of Donald Trump. So you made your mark, President Garfield, and uh, your, uh, your book was all inspiration for mine. Okay, that's the show. We have some amazing guests coming up this week. I don't want to say when. I did interview uh, Ji Seung Ho, the North Korean defector, who uh, famously at the State of the Union, he raised his crutches and he was totally maimed and disfigured in Korea. He, trekked thousands and thousands of miles as that uh, tyranny, you know, tortured his family to death. Uh, I sat down with him. He's the most heroic person probably I'll ever meet. We'll have that interview coming for you in a, in a few days, so be sure to tune in. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show, and I'll see you on Daily Wire backstage in like, I don't know, five minutes. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Senia Villarreal. Executive producer, Jeremy Borey. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer, Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Jim Nickel. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.